Good morning. Did you know that the most important thing about you is that God loves you? He loved you to the cross and back. And part of his great love is that he gives you a life that matters. You never have to wonder, do I matter? Do I count? You are number one in God's book. And he gives you opportunities every day to live a life beyond yourself. I like to call it a legacy life. This is Sue Donaldson. As you listen today, ask God, show me how to spend today investing in people and your word, because both last forever. There's no better way to live. Today, we welcome again uh, one of my favorites, uh, Jordan Rayner. You know, I was a high school teacher, Jordan, you're not supposed to have favorites, but I'm no longer a high school teacher. And you are one of my favorites. You're an author, entrepreneur a leading voice of the faith and work movement. Now, I read that on your website, and I thought that was very cool, and we're going to be talking a lot about that today. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks again for joining us. Please tell us a little bit about yourself, if this is your first time hearing Jordan. I will link our other podcast. It's about redeeming your time. Um, But tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, where you live, and your ministry, and then we'll talk about the new book. Yeah, sure. So, Sue, I always love hanging out with you. Thanks for having me back. My name is Jordan Rayner. I live in Tampa, Florida with my wife, Kara, and we got three young daughters, Ellison, who is nine, Kate, who is seven, and Emery, who we adopted at birth for a little over four years ago. Uh, professionally, I've spent the most, I've spent most of my career as a tech entrepreneur. I still serve as executive chairman of the board of a large tech startup I used to run as CEO. Uh, but most of my time these days, is spent creating content that helps Christians see how their work matters for eternity, which is a good segue into this book we're talking about today. Because, you know, Sue, when I, I've told thousands and thousands and thousands of people, hey, your work as a teacher, your work as a barista, your work as a marketer matters for eternity. And the most typical response I hear is, oh yeah, Jordan, amen. My job is my mission field. And listen, that is of course, gloriously true. (laughs) <laughs> but if the only way that your work listener matters for eternity is because you can use it to quote unquote share the gospel, then frankly, most of us are wasting 99% of our time. And to me, that's deeply depressing, but more importantly, it's deeply unbiblical. So I, I, I wrote this new book, The Sacredness of Secular Work, because I desperately want every Christian to see how every moment of their lives matters for eternity. Mm. I want them to see how every diaper they change and every Zoom meeting they lead and every Uber they drive is, in the words of the Apostle Paul, not in vain. So that's why I wrote this book, to help believers see how 100% of their time at work matters to God, not just the 1% of time they spend on exclusively spiritual tasks like evangelism. So great. So great. And I so enjoyed uh, digging into it. I did order it uh, pre-ordered so I could go to Paris. Come on now. Giving away a trip to France. That'll get people's attention. There we go. And tonight is, well, this is going out uh, the day before the release. So you have one more day to uh, check into Paris, but don't because I want to win. Today, we are largely talking about this new book and you mentioned the title. I'm going to read the whole title. Yeah, yeah. I think you have a graduate degree in title making. You have a few really great chapter titles as well. And I know because I was an English teacher. Okay. The sacred, here's the title, the sacredness of work, four ways your job matters for eternity, even when you're not sharing the gospel, which is what you just said. 
Um, but I want to tell you a story about myself first. We'll get to you in a minute. But um, I, I grew up in a great church and a, a great Christian family, and we supported missionaries a lot. In fact, they slept down the hall sometimes in our room. We had to sleep on the floor so they could sleep there. And I went forward every time, you know, there was an altar call because I felt it was important to be willing to do anything God calls me to do. And at 15, I told my mother on a walk around the neighborhood, Mom, I wouldn't mind being a missionary, except I am afraid of snakes like deathly. Mm-hmm. And I became a missionary, by the way. Yeah. For about a whole seven years. And I had slight encounters with snakes, which I won't go into. <laughs> Uh, thankfully, one was in a zoo behind glass in Brazil. Um, but I was a late bloomer. You don't know this about me, um, Jordan. And I finally married at age 35, which is a miracle story for another time if you ever want to interview me. Yeah. But the point is this. A good friend told me um, soon after I was married, like within a month, uh, I'm a little sorry for you, Sue, that you got married because you always wanted to be a missionary. And I said, oh, I was shocked. And I said, but people in California need Jesus too, is is how I answered. (laughs) Because it's wherever we are that we are spreading the gospel by our lives mainly, not by a tract. Um, I don't need to be a professional missionary. But we we were raised in in an environment, a situation where we think that professional Christians are more valuable in God's sight and they are not um i want you address this misconception several times yeah. in your book how would you answer someone who says but to be a foreign missionary is the most important thing we can do for god and i can see why because you have to sacrifice and yeah. god calls us to sacrifice yeah oh yeah for sure and listen i financially support mm. missionaries overseas and i greatly greatly appreciate the sacrifices that they make There's a lot that I could say to debunk this lie, but let me just poke the bear a little bit and just give one. If being a religious professional as a pastor or donor-supported missionary overseas is the highest calling of the Christian life, then God the Father made a grievous mistake in choosing for Jesus, his son, to grow up in the home of a small business owner named Joseph. Oh, oh, very good. God, let the fact that Jesus spent what most scholars estimate to be about 80% of his adult life working as a stonemason or carpenter has become way too familiar to us. Think about this. Mm-hmm. God could have easily chosen for his son to grow up in the home of a priest. Right. Like John the Baptist, where he would spend all day, every day doing the spiritual work of prayer and interceding on behalf of the people. Mm-hmm. He could have chosen for Jesus to grow up in the home of, of a Pharisee like the Apostle Paul, maybe, where he would spend all day long studying Torah. But instead, God in his sovereignty chose for Jesus to grow up in the home of a small business owner where he would spend the vast majority of his days of his adult life making things with his hands working a regular J-O-B job like most of us are doing today. So I, there's so much more evidence we could point to, but that one is just the most glaring to treat the pastors in the pulpit and the missionaries that we bring up on our stages as team varsity and the mere Christians in the pews as mm. JV mm. is unbiblical just based on what we see in the example of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, I want to push back a little bit here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Jesus called his closest followers out of a menial job into making disciples overall around the world so people could argue, well, that must have not been a good enough job because he wanted to call them to become fishers of men. Yeah. We love celebrating Peter's story. And we forget that just as often as Jesus called some of his followers out of their quote-unquote menial jobs, he called a lot of his followers to go back to the jobs, the seemingly quote-unquote secular jobs that they had prior to following him. Zacchaeus is case in point. Zacchaeus says, hey, Lord, I'm choosing to follow you. I'm repenting of my sins, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to leave my job as a tax collector, but I'm going to go back, and instead of exploiting the poor, I'm going to seek to bless the poor. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, no, 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 Zacchaeus. If you're going to follow me, you got to quit that nasty profession of being a tax collector and follow me as a full-time missionary. No, no, no. He said, today salvation has come to this house. When John the Baptist is preaching this this gospel message of repentance, the kingdom of heaven is near. Who is it that comes down into the river to be baptized? Roman soldiers and tax collectors who asked John the Baptist, hey, now that I'm signing up for this whole kingdom of heaven thing, what do I have to do? And John doesn't tell them to quit their jobs. Hmm. He tells them to go back to their jobs and change their relationship to them. So yes, sometimes in the gospels, We see Jesus calling people out of their roles as fishermen and tax collectors. But many other times we see Jesus calling people back into that work. Why? I think it's because ever since the beginning of this thing we call Christianity, it has always been mere Christians and not religious professionals that have been most effective at the Great Commission. It is those of us who embrace the first commission to make culture that we see in Genesis 1 and that's never retracted in Scripture. As we go about the Great Commission that are most effective at the Great Commission, I think it's part of the reason why we see Peter catching fish and catching people. I think it's why we see Paul making tents and making converts. And I think it's why we see Jesus making tables and making disciples right that we we there's this real i'll end with this there's this really really fascinating book published years ago by this brilliant theologian named dr michael green it's called evangelism in the early church and it studied how did christianity explode so quickly in the first three centuries right and he found that more than 80 percent of conversions to christianity in those first three centuries came about not through people preaching the synagogue not through donor support of missionaries, mm-hmm. but through mere Christians working as tech. Repeat the name of that book slower, please. Yeah, it's a book called Evangelism in the Early Church mm-hmm. by Dr. Michael Green. And the point for us today is I, I was just talking with I, I was talking with Tim Keller about this right before he passed away on my podcast. And um he said, Jordan, this is gonna be true at least for the next generation. Why? Mm-hmm. Because the fastest growing religious affiliation in North America is no religious affiliation. Non-believers are less likely than ever to darken the door of a church to hear about right. Jesus for the first time. So where they can hear about him through you and me that's going to working shoulder to shoulder with them mm-hmm. Monday through Friday. And that's why I do hospitality. There you go. Because people will come to his table, possibly after coming to your table for the first time. You cover lots of different themes. One is to get, and we're going to talk more about the dual commission in a minute because yeah. I love that part. 
you give us a bigger view of the gospel. How can we get a bigger view of something that's already so big? What do you mean by that? Oh, I would argue the gospel we preach in most of our churches is tragically small. Well, the what we preach, but what it is, is what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that, no, yeah, absolutely. I, the dominant version of Jesus' good news that I hear most, I think it's fair to say, very fair to say, most churches preaching today is what I call the abridged gospel. It is the mm. good news that Jesus came to save people from their sins. Right. Listen, every word of that is gloriously true, but it's tragically incomplete. The gospel is not just good news for our souls. It's good news for the spiritual realm of souls and the material realm of this earth. And to say otherwise, I would argue, is to accuse Jesus of being only a partial victor. It's to accuse him of being loser rather than Lord. Let me explain what I mean by that. That's a bold claim. Yeah, I was just going to say, what do you mean? Let's talk about this. Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 31. God looks at everything he had made, the spiritual realm of human beings and this material world and calls it very good. Genesis 3, Satan breaks every part of that good creation that God called good, spiritual and material. And so, to quote the theologian Stephen Lawson, quote, if redemption does not go as far as the curse of sin, then God has failed, end quote. Because God promised to send a redeemer not to just strike Satan's head, but to crush Satan's head in total indisputable victory and win back everything that was broken in Genesis 3. And that's what we see in the cross. Jesus has not just bought back the spiritual realm as if, God and Satan did a deal and God said, hey, you know what, Satan, you broke everything, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take the spiritual realm. You keep this material earth and we'll call it a truce. That's mm -hmm. garbage theology, but that's what we're preaching when we say that Jesus only came to save you and me from our sins. And here's why this matters to our lives today. If the gospel is just good news for our souls, then the great commission to save souls and make disciples is the only commission of your life and the vast majority of us are wasting the vast majority of our time. Mm -hmm. But if Jesus's blood was sufficient to redeem our souls and this material world, then my work with this material world, typing on MacBooks made out of aluminum from this earth, planting mm -hmm. gardens in my backyard, writing a novel on paper made from trees must also matter to God. Because mm. Jesus' blood paid to redeem it all, right? Mm. The unabridged gospel we see in scripture is not just good news for our souls. It's good news for the world. And that assigns great dignity and meaning to the quote-unquote secular work we do with mm. this material world Monday mm. through Friday. Um, you talk in your book, a big section actually, about half-truths about heaven I'm happy to see that you received a resounding endorsement from Randy Alcorn, the, the heaven uh, expert. Give us an idea of what you mean and maybe a couple examples. Yeah, we've just been hitting on one of them. Um, this half-truth that Earth is our temporary home. That's not a lie per se, but it's certainly not the whole truth. The whole truth is that Earth is our temporary home until this Earth is renewed by Jesus and is our perfect permanent home. And we just talked through the implications of that. If this earth is eternal, then my work with this earth has eternal meaning to God, right? I'll give so you another exciting. one. 
this half truth that we will worship for, for all of eternity, right? Kind of true. Uh, depending on how you define the word worship, the problem is uh, most Christians I know have a very limited view of what that word means. Yes. And scripture makes it abundantly clear that we can worship God through song, yes, and also by the work of our hands. And scripture mm. makes it crystal clear that eternity on the new earth is not an eternal vacation, but a perfect vocation without the curse. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17, says, God says through the prophet Isaiah, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Skip down to, I think it's verse 20. My chosen people will build houses and dwell in them. Wow. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. My chosen people will long enjoy the work of their hands and they will not labor. Wow. Man, right? So, yeah, it's kind of true that we'll worship for eternity. The whole truth is that we're going to worship for eternity by singing yes and by long enjoying the work of our hands free from the curse of sin. I don't know about you, Sue, but that's way more exciting to me than billions of years of singing. dynamics. <laughs> I know, and I have this um, three-by-five card here on the bottom of my desktop before I begin, Lord, please help me write for you with your strength, grace, talent, and wisdom. Lord, I worship you today as I write, create, market, connect, encourage, and exhort for your kingdom and glory. So we do it now, but we do it imperfectly and in part, as scripture says. Well, that is uh, encouraging already. One thing I found particularly helpful and insightful is your discussion of the dual commission. I'm always referring to the Great Commission, um, basically because of my passion for hospitality. Um, but I had no idea that the phrase came in with Hudson Taylor, who is one of my favorites, by the way, and I will exhort you, have you read Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret? I have. I try to read it every three to five years because yeah. of that great line, uh, which is actually good marriage therapy, which is learn to move men by God through prayer alone. Yeah. And um, it's a little joke there about the marriage thing. Yeah. And because I'm a big mouth, I don't always do it, but I am trying to learn it. And it's such a great thing, but they came up with his phraseology, which is great because he was great. He started a great movement or God did through him. Um, but elaborate on what you mean about the commission that came first. Uh, yeah. Cause you talk about dual commission and why is it as important as the what we call the Great Commission? Yeah. <laughs> so, oh man, there's a lot to unpack here. So the first commission we see God give humankind in scriptures in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate. I like calling it the first commission simply to fill the earth, subdue it uh, and rule it for God's glory. Uh, Wayne Grudem, the editor of the ESV Bible, explains this text. I love the way he explains it. He says, the first commission is simply, quote, to make the world more useful for other human beings' benefit and enjoyment, end quote. And isn't that exactly what our listeners are doing right now mm -hmm. as entrepreneurs and teachers and mechanics? That's exactly what you're making the world more useful for other human beings' benefit and enjoyment. The lie that, that, that has entered Christianity for the first time ever in the last 200 years is that somehow the Great Commission, which is great, 
to make disciples has somehow replaced or supplanted that first commission to make culture. That's a lie. Yet, yes, the first commission becomes more difficult in Genesis 3, but after Genesis 3, we continue to see God reiterating the first commission in the context of blessing over and over and over. Work is mentioned more than 800 times in Scripture. That's more than every single mention of worship, singing, and praise combined. Obviously, most of those mentions coming after the fall, clearly our work still matters greatly to God. But somewhere along the way, and again, this is brand spanking new in church history, right about the 1800s when Hudson Taylor coined this man-made term, Great Commission, a lot of us have lost, lost sight of the intrinsic goodness of that first commission. We functionally treat the Great Commission as the only thing that Christ followers are called to. And ironically, when we do that, I would argue we become less effective at the first commission. We I just talked I, about this a few I minutes believe, ago. I believe that. I think that the more we work on the first commission, as you call it, the more we are, I think Christianity is more attractive. To yes. Them because they go, wow, they care about things that I care about. You know, that's right. That's exactly God right. God cares about this. Yes, he does. It's the perennial objection to Christianity. Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That's a fair accusation, right? But when we're fully engaged in the first commission and making this world better for the benefit of other people in line with God's kingship rather than the world's, oh man, that's when Jesus becomes real attractive to a lost and watching world. You know, I'm married to a very smart man, um, but he'd rather talk about his 94 Honda than the gospel. Uh, and the, and there are neighbors who are mechanical engineers. My husband's a doctor, but he could have been a mechanical engineer. And um, he's always being called on to help neighbors with their projects and vice versa. They come over and help him. And I like to say to my growth group, when so-and-so becomes saved, it will be because of my husband. Yeah. It's nothing that I do as far as saying, by the way, you need Jesus. Um, it's the way he shows Jesus by being interested in caring about this wonderful man across the street, uh, his projects, you know, his mechanical projects, making beer, uh, yeah. loading things into his truck, yes. going to the dump with him. I mean, my husband's a humble man and I praise God for that. But this is just as valuable as someone really... I knew of a man who came out of seminary and felt called to pastor a church and the church went under because he was such a poor preacher and it broke our hearts because we knew people in that church. And I think he felt that this was the highest calling. So he went into it and he never went back to it. He yep. left it. Yep. But in the meantime, people's lives are trampled. It's, it's very heartbreaking. I guess that's off the subject, but it, it kind of yeah. has to do with it. No, it does. And listen, the, I love the local church. I'm an elder in a in a, the local church we're a part of, right? And there's good reason to be concerned with the great resignation we're seeing amongst pastors right now. But there are some of these pastoral resignations that I think we need to celebrate. Yeah. I, I'll give you I'll give you one example. My buddy Kevin Finch. Kevin was a pastor, uh, but he also moon he was moonlighting as a restaurant critic. Right, this is going back. 10 years ago. Well, and he told me, he's like, you know, Jordan, I saw all of these like really hurting people 
in the restaurant industry. They were mm-hmm. serving me as waiters and waitresses and busboys, et cetera. And I was so desperate to build relationships with them and just love them. But as soon as I told them I was a pastor, right. conversation stopped. Right. <laughs> so Kevin left the pastorate wow. so that he could do ministry outside the four walls of the church. And we need to celebrate that. We need to look to the okay. Kevins of the world and say, hey, you know what? Oftentimes, you are going to be a lot more effective mm-hmm. doing ministry and sharing the gospel outside the four walls of the church. And so round of applause for Kevin for making that courageous decision. And, and, and again, really, we need local pastors. Yeah, I'm all about it. Me too. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with humility and pride. All of us need to listen yeah. listen to God. Like if he told me to stop podcasting, I hope he waits until this comes out. But um, to not say, oh, I'm a podcaster. Exactly. Or, I'm a minister of the gospel as if that's um, who we are. No, we're children of God and we're blessed to partner with him in whatever way, you know, humility attracts God to us and vice versa. And so that may be the main key thing. You mentioned that the first commission is for us to make the world more useful for others, benefit and enjoyment. So what, what came to mind was what differentiates a believer's desire to do this versus an unbeliever's sincere and altruistic desire to do that? Oh, that's such an excellent question. I, well, I think by God's common grace, uh, I think there's some overlap I, there. I agree. I agree. Right. Yeah. But I I think the believer is going to have a drastically different why for the non-believer as to why yeah. they want to make oh. the world a better place. Right? Yeah. That, that That's first and foremost. Second, I think the believer should be doing that work in distinctly Christ-like ways. I mean, if you want to go to just one passage of scripture, just go to 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter that we love to read at weddings. Yet marriage was not the primary context that Paul was writing about there. The primary context there was the stewardship of spiritual and vocational gifts. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, Paul says, hey, I'll show you the most excellent way to steward these vocational gifts. You want to know what the most excellent way is? Love is kind. Love is patient. Love is not self-seeking. So how will a believer engage in the first commission differently than the non-believer? They're going to do it in a non-self-seeking way. Mm. They're going to do it in an otherworldly patient way. They're going to do it in a way that loves their enemies and competitors in a way that makes absolutely no sense to the world. They're going to do they're, they're not just going to be great at their craft. They're going to be great Jesus-like people who are scratching off glimpses of what Jesus's kingdom looks mm. like on mm. earth as it is in heaven. Someone in my um, extended family was laid off from a position. She was shocked. She was vice president of something. And she was told by the new CEO, I want you to stick around a little bit, even though she'd been fired to help the, the transition. And she did it with such grace mm that her employees didn't even know what was going on and she was commended for it. Now, of course, she's still at a loss of what God has next for her. But I thought that is Jesus at work. Yes. Yes. That's preach at work. Right. Uh, and I've just been convicted of sin, by the way, I'll, I'll let you know, turn your collar around. But um, as a younger believer, I remember I was talking, striking up a conversation with a young man on an airplane and he was all into saving the whales. And I just thought, that is so crazy that that's your whole life. Because I was comparing it with living for God, right? So I was disparaging it in my mind, which was very proud. 
and not what God would want. I don't think I did that to him, but it doesn't matter because God knew what was going on in my heart. So now I'm going to think, wow, that is so great what you're doing for the whales, because that's part of the first commission. That's and right. So is, and oh, by the way, it's part of God's <laughs> plan for redemption. You know, we, we talk a lot in the, a lot in the church today. Mo, most of our teaching on eternity focuses on the present heaven. You, you got to really look in scripture for clues about the present heaven. Scripture talks way more about the new earth. Wow. This earth being renewed mm-hmm. with animals and cobras that are lying with babies and kids that are leading lions. It's incredibly earthly language, but we've lost this in the modern church. Yeah. We just yeah. think of heaven as this ethereal place in the clouds. Listen, not a single person will spend eternity in heaven. Jesus will not spend eternity in heaven. He promised heaven on earth and to dwell with us here. And so our work with the earth in the present, renewing it in line with the values of the kingdom of God Mm. matters deeply to the creator who made all things good. Mm. Boy, Jordan, I wish you were a little more passionate about this. Um, uh, why are believers so mixed up about the secular versus the spiritual? A professor of mine once said, spirituality isn't the slice of the pie, it's the whole pie. And I have yep. never forgotten that. And whenever I use that, when I speak, people are like, their eyes are just, that's right. Because what you do today matters if it's changing a diaper or making homemade bread or bread in the bread machine. It doesn't matter because spirituality is the whole pie. What would you say to help someone figure out that they need to put those two things together? Oh, man. The roots of this are crazy deep. Crazy deep. I would argue many Christians, they might not they might not know a lot of Plato's work. They may have never read Plato, but they're more influenced by Plato than they are Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? In a lot of ways. This idea of spiritual realm good material world bad has no basis in god's word at all wow this is platonic thought Mm. that that infiltrated the early church it is still nagging at our heels today two thousand years later but here's what i would say just for the sake of time to make this real as simple as i possibly can because i like simplicity um the word secular literally means with no regard for religion or without God. Mm. But we Christians believe that God is literally with us. Right. Every single place we go through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the only thing you need to do, believer, to instantly make your secular, quote unquote, workplace sacred is walk through the front door. Or Mm. log on to Zoom. That's it. Mm -hmm. There's no question about the sacredness of your seemingly secular work. I would argue the more interesting question, the more transformative question is beyond the present. How does my sacred work as a teacher, as a scientist, as somebody trying to save the whales, how does that matter? beyond the present. How does that matter for eternity? Mm. And that's really what I'm trying to help readers answer in the sacredness of secular work. You say um, there's intrinsic value in the work itself. I think that's what you were just trying to say. 
Anything more about that? What does that really mean? Yeah, I, listen, I think most believers understand that their work has instrumental value, right? What I mean by that is, okay, I, I get it. I can leverage my job to the instrumental end of sharing the gospel with my coworkers or making a lot of money so I can write a check to my church. And all of that's true, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is if our work only has instrumental value, we're wasting the vast majority of our lives, right? The core premise of this book is that in addition to your work having instrumental value, it also has intrinsic value to God. It matters for eternity, even when you're not leveraging your work to some spiritual, quote unquote, and instrumental end. And if I can leave listeners with just one passage of scripture to make this case, it's got to be Psalm 37, 23, which says that the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives, every detail. In other words, not just when you're walking a lost neighbor through the Romans road, not just when you're stroking a check to the missionary on your refrigerator, everything you do today with excellence and love and in accordance with God's commands is an ingredient into the eternal pleasure of God. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you write, the real heresy is hurting our people by devaluing 99% of their lives in which they are not explicitly sharing the gospel. Yes, that is depressing. If someone felt that that's what it was. Um, I think you already answered this question. My question was, how can we begin to feel better about the work God's led us to do just by having that viewpoint? Yeah, I'd point you a couple things. Number one, Psalm 37, 23. Yeah. Number two, look at the example of Jesus, right? Who spent the vast majority of his time doing work that most pastors today would call secular. Right. Even though he was the God man, right? right? Uh, and number three, I would point you to the work of Jesus' heavenly father. I would argue the work of Jesus' earthly father wasn't all that different from his heavenly father's. Before God shows up as a preacher before he tells us that he is holy or loving or omnipotent or just. He tells us that he is a God who works, a God who creates. It's literally the first verb in scripture. Mm. And up until verse 26 of Genesis 1, where it says that we are made in God's image, we know all but one thing about the image of God. It's that he is a God who creates, mm -hmm. right? So you want to see intrinsic value of your work? Just look at Genesis 1. Look at the life of Christ. Look at Psalm 37, 23. Hmm. So beyond sharing the gospel with a colleague, how can our work matter for eternity? Yeah, let me give you three quick ways. Um, the subtitle of this book is Four Ways Your Work Matters for Eternity. One of them is, yeah, you, you can leverage your job to make disciples at work. Uh, second, your work matters because it's a vehicle for bringing God eternal pleasure, which we just talked about. Number three, your work matters because it's largely through your work that you earn eternal rewards, which we never talk about in the church today. No. Not talking about earning salvation, but Jesus commanded us over and over and over and over and over again to chase after eternal rewards, to maintain that it's wrong to chase after eternal rewards is to bring a very, very serious accusation against your Savior. And then finally, number four, 
your work matters for eternity because through it, you can scratch off the thin veil between heaven and earth. You can reveal glimpses of something transcendent and eternal, i.e. the kingdom of God in the present, even without your words. Psalm 19 says the stars declare the glory of God, though they pour forth no speech. You and I can too. Wow. Uh, for those who don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism, but want to follow both commissions, you share seven ways to make disciples that don't include leaving tracks in the break room. I think this generation doesn't know what a track is, so, <laughs> uh, but I do. And uh, what are some of your favorites of the seven? Yeah, I'll just give you one. And this would be a good place to uh, end our conversation because it's so practical. I, I, you know, I wrote, I wrote the sacred and secular work and, my promise to the reader was, hey, this book isn't just going to be interesting. It's also going to be profoundly helpful in helping you make your work matter more for eternity. And so there's 24 practices baked into this book to help you do that. Let me give you one of my favorites. Build a list of launchers to steer conversations with the lost from the surface to the serious to the spiritual. What's a launcher? So – um, you can keep this in a physical journal. I decided to keep it on a note on my phone. All a list of launchers is, is number one, a list of names of people you're trying to share the gospel with. And number two, next to each name, a list of questions, conversation starters, whatever that you think will launch your next conversation with that person from the surface level to the serious to the spiritual. So for example, on my list right now, I'm going to change names to protect the innocent. Uh, my buddy, Justin. Last time I saw Justin, we were talking about how much he loves Kung Fu, right? I know nothing about Kung Fu. So the next time I see Justin, I can say, hey, man, um, tell, me, tell me what you love so much. Or like, how, how's Kung Fu going? That's a surface level question, yeah. right? And then I'm going to get a little bit more serious. Hey, man, beyond the exercise it gives you, what do you love about Kung Fu? Because like you really love it. That's a little bit more serious. And then if I feel the Holy Spirit prompting me to go a level deeper, I'm going to ask him, hey, last time we grabbed a beer, Justin, the way you talked about Kung Fu, you used almost religious terms hmm. to describe this. What is Kung Fu your – would you call Kung Fu your religion? Do you have any religious beliefs? So th th those little prompts take up – I don't know. It's like – 50 words in a Google Doc on my phone. That's it. But that tiny bit of intentionality, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen God use launchers like those to predictably move conversations towards spiritual things. And you, listener, can too. So start a note on your phone today. List out those names of people you want to share the gospel with. Next to those names, draft some launchers. And the next time you see that friend, right before you get out of your car, take 10 seconds glance at that list of launchers and pray for the Holy spirit to move and mm. open up pathways for you to move from the surface mm. to the serious, to the spiritual. Yeah. That's why I wrote a book, 252 conversation starters great. and use, I'll send you one um, and use them in my wine nights because uh, women need to share, but we could waste our whole time talking about surface. So I do a surface question and then a little deeper question right. um, and never crack open the word yet. But we'll yeah. see what happens, what God has in mind. Uh, we're closing right now, Jordan. But I just, this thought came to mind uh, when I was preparing for this. How can you get this message out? Because a lot of people do not read books. 
People yeah. are non-readers, a whole generation of non-readers that listen to a book, yes. But I really feel strongly that this uh, needs to be in every seminary, uh, Christian liberal arts school, which I went to, uh, a Bible school, because it is revolutionary and radical how people uh, pursue work and how they pursue their career and how they feel less than. And so how, what program do you have ready to do that? Because yeah. my little podcast will help, but not what needs to be done. Well, so, by God's grace, this is happening. Uh, oh. So we we are, my, my team and I are chunking up this content, a lot of different formats. So obviously the audiobooks are a really good place to start for those who don't read books. But we also have the Mere Christians podcast that explores these themes every single week. We got another podcast that's five minutes long each week called The Word Before Work mm. that explores a lot of these concepts. And this year in 2024, we're doing a lot of partnerships with big mega churches uh, to help roll this content out in course form. Uh, so all that's coming to you. You can stay tuned for all of that at jordanrainer.com. Okay. And all those links are on jordanrainer.com. Oh, yeah. And you're willing to give away one of your fabulous books with a great title? That's right. Okay. So just a comment today on the uh, social media, or you can email me at sue at welcomeheart.com. Jordan, it's been a delight. Uh, keep writing, but I like this one best. Thanks, Sue. Thank me you. Me too. Until next time, think about your legacy, the one God has called you to live, all for heaven's sake. I would love to speak at your next Christian Women's event. See my keynotes and retreat series, as well as the show notes from today's broadcast at welcomeheart.com. Thanks for coming. You're always welcome here.